This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to episode four of Rewind's Look Back at Melbourne Outfit Something for Kate's much-loved 2001 third album, Echolalia. I'm your host, Steve Bell. We're well into this particular tale now, so if you haven't checked out the early episodes, it's probably for the best if you dive in there first. We left episode 3 on something of a cliffhanger. We followed our heroes through the rather tumultuous voyage towards Echolalia, fighting off riders block by trekking to exotic locales, teaming up with a producer from far-flung shores, surviving the ordeal of recording at Mangrove Studios, which sounded pretty awesome really, and the final result is Echolalia, a group of songs that everybody is stoked with. Everybody, as we found out last episode, except the head honcho at Sony Music Australia, the parent company of something for Kate's label Murmur, Dennis Handlin, who delivered a scathing takedown of Echolalia's lead single Monsters in front of an entire Sony conference. Here's Murmur head John O'Donnell recounting the incident. One of the stories about the making of this record is that um, I had the finished record and we had a Sony conference where the whole company comes in and... There was this, you know, I had an hour to present what's coming next on Murmur. And I would have played Silverchair staff and I would have played maybe Ammonia staff or um, Lotel was a band that we were working with then and they had a song called Teenager of the Year. But anyway, I ended our presentation with Monsters and um, I knew it was a special song. So I played the finished mix of that song and during me playing that, Dennis Hanland stopped everything, stopped the whole playback, and in front of the whole company said, who here would put their hand up and say that this is a hit single? Um, so very aggressive and challenging move um, in front of the whole company. And um, I put my hand up because I believed in this band and I believe, but of course it was a rhetorical question. Dennis knew that no one else in the room was going to put their hand up and say this was a hit single because A, he's Dennis Hanlon and he'd asked the question in such a way that he didn't want anyone to do that. Um, and so I stood there and he, he was particularly nasty about it. He said, this record's not getting released. We're going to put this record on the shelf because this band's not ready to step forward. And, um, and we'll talk about this later, but um, we're going to need more recording done or we're going to need remixes done because this is not good enough. And it was incredibly challenging. And I had, to, I had to, I think we broke for lunch after this session and I was shattered, um, really upset, really pissed off. And uh, I had to call their manager Carlene Albronda and say, um, Carlene, we've got a problem. Um, Dennis has made a scene in front of the company saying, we don't have a hit single and we're not releasing this record without a hit single. Um, and so we had to go into 
sort of a damage control situation. Now, Dennis Hanlon is a huge figure in the history of Sony Australia. He spent more than 50 years with the company, nearly 40 of those as the head of the Australasian division, until his resignation a few months back in June 2021. But 20 years ago, he was all-powerful, not just in Sony, but in the Australian music industry, and he ruled with an iron fist. He's running the label. He's got every right to say he's not going to release something he doesn't think is good. But monsters? And like that in front of the entire company? The ramifications of his actions reverberated across the planet to America, where Echolalia producer Trina Shoemaker was gutted when told that the work she'd just poured her heart and soul into, and which she loved, had been deemed unacceptable by the Sony powers that be. Do you remember at any stage sitting back and hearing the album or reflecting on what you just helped put, you know, create? Oh, yeah. And then it got a bomb thrown in it, which was so devastating that it will go down as one of the most gutting moments of my life in this business. And I'll tell you, so listening to the record after we mastered it, we mastered it with Joe Gastwert and we were in Los Angeles and we went around to, there weren't Best Buys then, but something like a Best Buy, places that sold blasters and like seat, you know, stereo, like mm-hmm. back when stereos were CD players, but they could be big or small. And, and we would go up and down, you know, with the, with the mastered CD, listening in every damn blaster car stereo setup in the, you know, the electronic stereo store and um, checking the mastering. So we were constantly listening to it um, at that point to get the perfect kind of um, mastered record. And, you know, I always, once a record's finished, this one included, once I get back to my space, my, you know, home, I do sit and listen to it top to bottom and I feel joy and pride. And that all happened and I loved this record. And then it might've been a week, maybe a week and a half after I got back, records mastered, we're on cloud nine. Stephanie calls me and she is so upset. Sony initially, I don't know if a lot of people, I don't know if Sony will even admit to this, but they did and it's provable. They rejected the record entirely. Everything about it. Not, oh, we don't like the mastering. We're not crazy about the mixes. They flat out told that band, we're not putting this record out. We don't like it. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. No, I just about fainted. I like literally, I thought I was going to like pass out. I couldn't understand what she was saying. She might as well, I mean, certainly won't like, and it's like getting a call that someone's passed away or died. Cause obviously that's much worse, but it felt like that on some level where it just, it, it knocked the wind out of me. It was the most upsetting thing that I can even, there's only been two other things that have been that where I just thought I am done with this business. How fucking dare they do that? After all that work, like who, who are these people? Something for Cape frontman Paul Dempsey, who wrote Monsters after the spell in Thailand recalibrated his creativity, admits being upset at first, but they resolved to remain as pragmatic as possible in the face of the negative feedback. Yeah, it was difficult. It was, um, you know, you don't, it's not what you want to hear. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, I, it had, like, I knew that it had nothing to do with, with the song or the mix or what we had done. I just knew that it, it, 
it didn't really have anything to do with that and it had more to do with internal major label politics and you know when we first got that phone call kind of saying oh you know there's some discussions about the mix and I, I remember getting on the phone with John and you know I was angry and you know I was not happy and you know we uh, <laughs> I think I yeah probably the most tense conversation I've ever had with John O'Donnell uh, before or since. Um, but it was just like, why? Why is this happening? Like, there's nothing fucking wrong with this song or this mix or this record or anything about it. Um, and so, I, you know, I was just not... Yeah, I was not happy. But, um, but as I say, at the same time, I kind of knew that it, it really wasn't about the song. It was more about, you know... There was a new A&R guy at Sony at the time who was, you know, A&Ring this record. And I feel like maybe he uh, needed to prove something to his boss that he was somehow doing his job. Craig Matheson, then a Sony employee, but these days a friend and confidant of something for Kate, believes that there were other forces at play than just the song itself. Look, major record companies, and we're talking about a major record company in 2001, when they were very different beasts than they are now. Bigger, much more sense of tradition, much more sense of calling the shots in their mind, um, you know, but they're always artist-friendly um, if the artist sells a certain amount of records. Um, you know, uh, so there was, there was this sense that, and I think, okay, let me put it more in context as well. 2001, you know, Guitar music, alternative rock, it's really at the, it's, it's plateaued out. It's been the end of the decade has been a strange time. You know, we've gone from Nirvana at the start to Puddle of Mud at the end. So we're in trouble. Um, you know, so there are promising bands. There are great bands. Um, you know, Radiohead are incredible, you know, but there's also, you know, these record companies have made all this money off the resurgence of pop, you know, Britney, Spice Girls, Savage Garden. So, you know, record companies are kind of, you know, they're very much focused again on we want to sell, sell, sell. And, you know, so this band, oh, this band's done quite good on their second album. All that means in a record company's eyes is they should sell twice as many records on the next album. Um, so there was that sort of lurking in the background. You know, I think John O'Donnell did an incredible job of shielding the band. And, you know, he's a very, um, he knows how to work so many different angles in, in life and work. And, you know, he really put a lot on his shoulders and it paid off. But, yeah, things filtered through. I'm going to introduce another player to proceedings at this stage, but one in the perfect position to shed some light on this strange impasse. In 2001, Jonathan Williamson was the marketing manager at Murma working closely alongside John O'Donnell, and he'd also been something for Kate's product manager since their 97 debut album, Elsewhere for 8 Minutes. He eventually progressed to the role of Director of Marketing for all of Sony's Australian artists, and after leaving Sony, even spent a few years in the 2000s managing something for Kate. These days, he's an intellectual property lawyer and trademark attorney at Bespoke Law, but he can remember vividly sitting in that Sony conference and being blindsided by what transpired. 
it was a big confab with all the sales and marketing team in a big auditorium. And I remember we were effectively uh, debuting the, the new record and talking about the rollout of the new Something for Kate album. And we were pretty excited about the first single, Monsters, which really had exceeded our expectations in the sense that it was it was a big song. It it had all the the theatre that we'd come to know uh, with something for Kate, but it it was an epic song, and we were, we were very excited about it. So when it received some sort of criticism or pushback in that big forum with the whole company there, we were we were a bit surprised. <laughs> <laughs> what what. What do you think Sony was aiming for in that scenario? Because it seems so weird that Monsters like objectively seems like a great song. It was proved to be a massive hit. Mm. At that point, what were they, what was happening? Well, I, I think, you know, there were a lot of people working in Sony who were fans of the band, which as, as a uh, marketing manager or a label manager, you know, that's, that's the vital ingredient ingredient you've got to get the team behind the band and the record so we we knew that there was a lot of support and passion uh for something for kate and there was a lot of anticipation that this record would be their break breakthrough album um when when you um you know when you take a song like monsters and put it out there you you're hoping that people are going to embrace it and uh un- unfortunately in that forum there was a bit of a hiccup there was a bit of criticism and a few people said yeah maybe it needs a remix maybe it needs a bit of tweaking so we can get it on radio obviously you can't speak for that contract but in in a typical contract between a band and the label what rights do the label have to to influence the music? Well, generally, a um, a contract wouldn't speak to the creative output per se. Although there's an expectation that it's going to be of a sort of merchantable standard, that it's going to be the the best possible creative output. Of, of the artists involved. And I mean, my recollection is there, there wasn't any question um, about the, you know, the, the quality of the band or the music they were making. It was more of a controversial um, sort of statement that, you know, or, or query, what was this record good enough? And, uh, and that's what, kind of caught us a bit by surprise because we we were pretty sure it was a, a great record and it had the uh, capacity to cut through and and build a bigger audience for the band, which history shows us it did. So everyone's put their heads together to form a plan of attack and decided that there wasn't much option but to play ball, only if Monsters was going to be remixed, it was going to be remixed on their terms... And their terms were that any changes were going to be negligible. Here's John O'Donnell. I talked to the band for a, quite a long time um, 
but you know, over the next day or two, um, talked to them many times, and we had to organise a remix session down in Melbourne without Trina. Um, and supposedly remixed the song. We also got um, a guy called Michael Brower, who had done Coldplay mixes to mix the song um, over in New York. Um, so we, you know, we got these things done. I think Michael Brower's mix was done first um, and the band wasn't happy with it. We went into Sing Sing Studios in Melbourne and I flew down from Sydney and um, we basically, the, oh, the band just basically tinkered with it, added, added or subtracted something, um, but we were shaking our head going, this is bullshit, this is complete and utter horseshit. Um, and they delivered a mix and I went into Dennis and played it to him and he just wanted to put them through the ringer, basically, and say, is this band listening to us? Is this band taking us seriously? Um, what we released was the same version that I'd played in the meeting room, in the conference room, um, and uh, with a slight edit that we were going to do anyway. Um, so I'd been through this very stressful three-week period of, or a month period of tinkering with the song, taking back basically the same version, playing it to him in his office, him going, I'm glad they've listened to us, where you're allowed to roll forward now. And, um, and the crisis was averted. Um, then of course, Monsters goes on to be a pretty big commercial radio song Triple J's number two in the Hottest 100, the album debuted at number two. The band was on this incredible upward trajectory and um, Dennis, you know, could pretend that it was because of his toughness or um, aggressive stance that um, that improved it. But it was, it was literally, and Paul will tell you this story, it was literally the same version that the band had delivered um, so we went through our shenanigans um, to get the record in a position. And of course, it went on to sell well past platinum. I think it's probably at double platinum now or just shy of that. So it, you know, it did northward of 100,000 in its first year and um, continues to do really well, obviously, to this day. Um, so... Um, you know, kind of, um, and I, you know, I don't, I'm not here to gripe about Dennis. No. It, it was particularly um, nasty and vengeful and um, others in the company saw it for what it was. And there are a couple of really decent and good people who kind of, you know, came to my aid and were also really supportive in that moment. And was just going. This is bullshit. This band's on a on a clear trajectory to somewhere, um, and he's, you know, being a dickhead about this. And um, anyway, we got beyond that moment. And and I must say, then, you know, success has many fathers. Suddenly, the band was much more in favour at Sony than they had been 
So essentially, the exact same song is eventually given the green light by Sony, making this a textbook power play. Paul reckons that from the band's point of view, the whole thing was pretty much just an exercise in diplomacy at the end of the day. The feedback was that they would like the Monsters single to be remixed and they wanted uh, this guy Michael Brower to remix it because he, you know, he'd been mixing all the kind of radio hits that were happening at that particular time. He was the mixer guy of the moment. And they wanted to, you know, pay him this exorbitant fee to, you know, do a, you know, radio mix of monsters and, you know, he was going to fix it and make it a hit and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I don't know, I, I just, we just knew that it was, it was just one of those situations that we sort of had to just navigate for the sake of diplomacy um, and, you know, if we sort of, I think we, we realised that if we just kind of did what we were being asked to do, but maybe if we could do it our way, then everyone would be happy. So um, I had a conversation with uh, the A&R guy and I had a conversation on the phone with Michael Brower, the Wonder Mixer as well. And, um, and then I was able to kind of go back to the label and, and, and we just said, okay, you want a remix, how about instead of, you know, you paying this huge fee to this guy, indulge us and let us remix it for you and see what you think. So they spent far less money putting us in a studio with Matt Lovell, our friend who had, uh, was the assistant engineer on the record anyway. And we did a very, um, what's the word? Um, yeah, we did a very minor remix of the song. Um, and we presented that back to the label and everyone was happy. And I don't even know really what they even played on the radio, whether it was like the album one or the remix one, but I don't know. It was, it was just one of those, it, it was a diplomatic exercise. Um, so, you know, it didn't change the album. The version on the album is the version that we mixed with Trina and it's the version everyone to this day knows. And, um, and the single remix version is, you know, the differences are extremely minor. Monsters ended up coming out in April 2001 and going gangbusters. It was all over the radio for ages. It rose to number 15 on the Aria singles chart, still something for Kate's highest placement on that chart. It came in at number 2 on the Triple J Hottest 100. It was nominated for an Aria for Single of the Year and an APRA Award for Song of the Year, the same song that their own label told them wasn't even good enough to put out. Jonathan Williamson explains how the collective decision not to rock the boat in the face of this pushback was pivotal to the song's eventual success. None of us saw this coming. We, we were confident that the record had the full support of the label and, you know, we'd, we'd played the song to the executive team in A&R meetings and things like that and, you know, it was decided that this conference would be the first time that it was uh, premiered to the company. So we were very surprised that that sort of um, negative criticism 
was was given in that forum. Um, but you know, we it, it almost made us more determined as as the murmur label to prove people wrong and to show them that the song had had all the goods, had all the merits. Uh, and if we had to make a couple of tweaks here and there and, and the band were, you know, quite compliant in, in that regard, then so be it. But it, it was frustrating. It was a frustrating um, bump in the road. So what's the expectations from a label like Sony for a band like something for Kate? I mean, is there a push and pull between art and commerce? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Murmur Music was a uh, a boutique label, if you like. Um, it was a place that was set up to find and and develop new talent um, without the sort of pressures of the main Sony Music label. Um, however, there, there reaches a point in in every artist's career when they're signed to a, effectively a major label that you know, they need to return on the investment. And um, there's definitely, there's definitely some, some pressure there from um, the, the label side to s- see if the band can realise the expectations um, of the label. Uh, but it, it's always something that in those times was approached in partnership with the band and their management. Is that, is that the level of success that Sony would have been chasing? Yeah, I look. You know, when when it comes to major record labels, um, there ain't no mountain high enough. Uh, they're chasing number one records, multi platinum albums, and you know they genuinely want the artist to succeed so they continue can continue in their careers. Uh, and uh, as I said, a, a, a lot of people within the company were fans of the band and were very passionate uh, about helping them achieve, you know, the best success they possibly could. This is a band that, you know, is, is motivated but didn't have career aspirations per se, um, you know. So for them to have a record that debuted at number two on the national album charts and go on to sell Platinum Plus was was a huge success, and I think it it um, realised the record labels' uh, expectations of, of this album. It's an example of of the dynamic in the company at that time, and I can only speak of my experience at, at Sony up till two thousand and five. But you know. There were always red herrings thrown out to try and challenge the the teams, whether it be promotions or marketing or A and R, to do better, to find you know the next hot act, to get more radio play, to get higher chart positions and sales, and the strategies which were used to try and achieve those things, um, you know, could have unintended consequences maybe they weren't so unintentional but you know when you try and um, rationalize that kind of criticism with a band and, and their management it's it's a tough pill to swallow and I can remember talking with um, 
John O'Donnell and, and Craig Matheson and I speaking to the band and their manager, Carlina Bronda, um, and just trying to, just, I, I guess, consider the pros and cons of, of, of how to respond to that criticism. And I've got to say, as much as it, it was, um, you know, a, a bit of a, uh, what's the best way to describe it? As much as it was a bit of a um, slap in the face, the band were quite pragmatic about it and knew that in order to get the Sony team, keep that motivation and get the Sony team behind them, they'd have to, you know, make some concessions. And they went into the studio, they made some tweaks, um, you know, it, it was kind of one of those more cowbell please moments. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they they played ball and and as a result the the record um was released with a company behind it the radio team went in thinking they had all the tools they needed and so on and um you know i think it was the you know it was the first time something for kate had had major radio play in australia on commercial fm networks and not just community radio and triple j where they'd you know found a home in the past so you know, whether it had a positive result or not or, or it was the cause of that success, I, I couldn't say that. I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it can be put down to that when you've got a band who'd worked so hard to build a fan base and, and make the kind of records they wanted to make. But, um, yeah, it was, it was certainly uh, a standout, standout sort of, uh, point in the life of the, this record for us at the label. So maybe this is all just part of the game, so to speak. But what about the collateral damage? Back then, Trina Shoemaker was a producer on the rise. She'd already won two Grammys for her work on Cheryl Crow's The Globe Sessions, which we discussed earlier. And since then, she's won two more Grammys and been nominated for others and worked on dozens of killer albums. But she remembers nearly walking away from music altogether in the face of the Sony criticism of her work on Echolalia. It was awful. I hate, I've hated Sony, actually, from that moment on, universally. I, I included all together. <laughs> Except for the headphones, they make some good, they used to make good headphones. No, it was, um, it was a very disturbing, but then it, then it had this end feeling of absolute victory. And you were able to say, fuck you for terrifying us and hurting us all permanently, gutting us, and then changing your mind when somebody else was brave enough to say, actually, this is a great record. It's different and it's unique and it's not following what your you know, idea that you thought, because they had an agenda. You see, we didn't. We just wanted the songs to come to life and to mean something. And they did, but they didn't follow, I guess, the secret agenda of Sony. So if any Sony people remember this, I'm sure you do, and you might be listening, that hurt. And then, of course, Steph and Paul and Clint remember, but I think, I mean, were we all just tripping? Because then it just went away once the it was like, that never happened. But it was two weeks of, it was two of the wor worst weeks of my life. You know, I was single then too, so I wasn't in a relationship that could bolster up my self-esteem. Oh, yeah. You know, I didn't have my kid yet. Like, and so I really thought, you have failed this band so catastrophically 
that you you don't deserve to make records and you thought you were pretty good at this after what had already been 20 years or like 15 years in the business and given my life to it and believing in it you know it was really it was it was and of course I got over it clearly but when I think about it I, and that you know changed me in a way that it made me become more of a person that was always going to not protect artists as much as protect those songs because there can be a person sitting at a label that just has some lame idea of what they think. Now, I'm not saying all label people are like that. Of course, they're not. But unless you're going to sit in that studio for 30 days, for 15 hours a day, and your entire life stops, and I know it's a fun living. It's not like, ooh, that sucks. You know, it wasn't like I was out on an oil rig. But still, you give so much, they don't get an opinion. If you, if you, unless you're going to be in that room with us, you don't really get that kind of opinion. Um, where you can pull the rug out from underneath people. Craig Matheson believes that it was a travesty that Trina was placed in that position, if only because her work on Ekalali was of undeniable quality. But she is such a good producer. I mean, you know, the things, that choice, that choice was one of the, you know, of Trina is just one of the things that sums up how everything was so in tune on Ekalalia. You know, there are just tracks, what's it? You know, little things like the hand claps on Say Something, you know, you know, that could be Paul, that could be Trina, it could be Stephanie, it could be Clint, but just all those little things that work through it. I mean, what's the one with the, ah, Feeding the Birds. You listen to Feeding the Birds, there's a whole separate layer of, of sound buried in that song that you just pick up. Incredible production, but, you know, there's like two lives in that song. You know, so... Trina was so good, and I mean, you know, no, no one that that talented should be put under that pressure. But I think, um, again, it's one of those ones where you just go, "We got there, and the record endured, and the record, you know, made it worth it." My feeling was it was just the record label's way of saying, you know, we're still here. You know, you know, we can sort of we can tweak things. It doesn't really matter, but we just want you to remember that we're here, and. You know, we love you, but it can be a harsh love at times. Um, so a little bit of power play, I think. Um, uh, it might, have, you know, probably cause consternation because no one wants their art messed with in any way. Um, and I think, I mean, really, I don't think monsters changed in any way. And this, the vindication was there was there very quickly as soon as it became obvious that that it was going to, you know, play across so many the breadth of radio in so many ways it was not going to stay on triple j it was not going to stay on community radio you know it was a massive song on was it nova nova fm for example triple m you know i mean that's a record company's dream from paul's perspective it's sad that anyone in the artistic realms is placed in such a predicament purely because of company politics it is i mean it's silly um and as i say it's just it's it is politics, um, but you know, for us in the band, who you know, just trying to sort of protect what we've created, uh, you know, we just—I I actually feel really proud of that that occurrence now because of the the way we were able to navigate our way through it and protect our record. Nothing on our record changed, uh, and the and the single remix we did it ourselves. Um, so I actually think we managed to achieve a pretty 
a pretty good result in the situation. And everyone at the label was happy after that as well. And nothing like that ever happened again, uh, you know, for the next uh, two records that we made with Sony after that. Um, we were totally left alone to do, you know, whatever we wanted and, you know, nothing was ever sort of questioned that way again. I think there was a lot of pressure in that moment as well because, there, were, you know, there were high expectations for Echolalia and for the Monsters single as well, you know. We, as I say, we had kind of built up this momentum and we, we were sort of poised um, from their point of view, you know, where we were poised for some sort of, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think there was a lot of pressure on people, including that A&R guy, you know, there, there was pressure that, you know, it just had to be right. So I think everyone was just doing everything they could to make sure that it was right. And it may have been an overstep, you know, uh, maybe they didn't need to uh, make us go and remix it, but I'm just glad that we figured out a solution where we did it ourselves and, you know, the album remained intact. And, and I'm quick to add that, you know, this was not John. None of this was coming from John. And, you know, uh, John was the messenger uh, with all of this stuff. And, and, you know, he really helped us as well to sort of arrive at that solution where, where we got to go in the studio and do it ourselves. So, um, yeah, uh, our relationship with John has always been wonderful and still is and yeah he's uh john is one of the good guys the band's bassist stephanie ashworth is of the opinion that you can't take these business decisions too personally and that this sort of scenario is pretty much part and parcel of a long career in music look it was an exercise in diplomacy uh you know in in uh it was, you know, I think it happens to a lot of bands where people um, from the label would like to feel a bit more involvement in the project. And I think at the time, you know, there was a need for, um, at a higher level, for some, some of the people at the label to feel that level of involvement. And, you know, that sort of tweaking of things and, you know, there's a lot of that that went on at the time where a band would record a single and then and they'd and they deliver it to the label and then the label will be like, oh, we're going to go and get an, another mix. We're going to get another mix done by this guy in, you know, the US who's had a lot of um, radio success lately and we're going to – it was very common. It was a very common thing to, to happen and I feel like, you know, to be honest, I feel like um, we – we the support we had from the label was probably um, – overshadowed any kind of feeling about that incident like I think I think that you know we're, we're sort of lucky to have um, done a five album deal uh, without much of that happening you know to be to be um, questioned about anything or um, anything anything being sort of interfered with or musically I mean we really were left to do what we wanted um, and the end result was a very pretty minor change I guess. Jonathan Williamson agrees that there's always going to be friction between art and commerce, especially where big money is involved. The band had so much goodwill within the label uh, and for something like this to come up at a pivotal time when we're about to take the record to the, to the public, um, there was 
there was no point in in trying to push back. It was more about trying to negotiate a path forward that didn't compromise the band, yet made sure that there were no excuses for the radio team or 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 a um, you know a, a salesperson to go out there and go out with complete confidence that this record was the full package. There was a healthy tension there. Um, we we weren't so presumptuous to think that we could, um, you know, everything we touch would turn to gold or anything like that. And we had to fight for every release, whether it was John and Craig trying to sign bands or, uh, you know, getting the budgets to record new records and promote and market them afterwards. Um, we... We, it was a very competitive environment within Sony, which was, you know, part of the secret to success in some regards. But um, yeah, we weren't we weren't uh, allowed to operate as this, you know, sort of satellite label without um, without. Uh, any responsibility back to the main label. We, we, we were accountable. Um, and, you know, this was, this was a very public example of that. At the end of the day, Paul was just glad to have the whole affair behind him. It's all just kind of behind the scenes stuff, isn't it? it um, yeah, you know, it, it was a challenge that we, you know, managed to get through unscathed, so... Uh, and you know, once it was all said and done, we were just we just rolled on, and you know, by the time the single came out, that was a distant memory, and we were just ready to go on tour, and and then you know, the response to the single was, uh, you know, just really enthusiastic and and wonderful. So you know, we were just getting on with it at that point and enjoying, um, you know, the 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 fruits of of the labor you know because the the year the year of writing and, and everything had been had been uh you know tough so there you have it in some ways much ado about nothing but in another almost a cautionary tale about knowing what side your bread's buttered on in the world of power and politics from his view behind the kit clint reckons that overall in their dealings with murmur and sony something for kate don't really have too much to complain about John O'Donnell um, has such confidence in our band and, you know, such a massive part um, of the band's career. And, yeah, we had the best relationship. It was just a small, like, we didn't feel like we were part of a major record company at all. Like, we'd go into the office. The member offices were separate to the Sony offices. You go in there and there's, like, you know, five of them that run it. It didn't feel like being on a major record label. And... They just let us do what we wanted to do. Like, you know, and Sony were pretty good to us by just trusting us, you know, um, trusting us, something for Kate to do what something for Kate does. Um, never were we sort of forced to go and write with other people or do all that kind of stuff that you hear about in major labels. They trusted us 100%. And I don't know, we I sometimes feel like we got away with something. Like we just hid there in the background, making records, putting stuff out on vinyl, doing these shows. Um, meanwhile, well, you know, Delta footed the bills for everybody or Tina Arena footed the bills for what we used to do. Like we were very, we were very lucky. Um, and, you know, occasionally you'd meet with the head of Sony every now and again and, you know, sort of 
very careful what you say these days. <laughs> but, you know, it, yeah, it was... It was weird. They were always behind us. And even, you know, all, all the guys who are in the main company were behind us as well, like who we'd occasionally go into the main office and JP and Flynn and all these guys were so behind the band. And, and um, there was a real, like there was at the Melbourne Sony office, we had a real um, real relationship with because we did, obviously went in Sydney a whole lot. So they were really behind us and championed us and um you know the record stores we used to have such great support from all the all the record stores um down in melbourne and yeah very lucky like you know very lucky for a band that never really sort of delivered a number one hit per se you know like i think we got to do a lot of good stuff nice one all right there's one more episode to go where we get to the release of echolalia how it was received at the time and its eventual legacy and we're also going to throw in a quick bonus episode about the postponed tour for the 20th anniversary of Echolalia, which had been combined with the already postponed tour for their most recent album, 2020's The Modern Medieval, and we'll take a look at the Something for Cat live show in general. Obviously, we're going to end this episode with the song at the centre of the controversy, Monsters, still one of Something for Kate's most cherished tunes. It's hard to imagine someone turning this song off halfway through and going to town in it, but I guess sometimes life's stranger than fiction. I was hanging upside down from the overpass Waiting to discover something about the world I couldn't get with the program and I couldn't listen to them It was like trying to think in reverse And I
As always, thanks for listening to Rewind. It's super appreciated. Thanks heaps to our network partner, Yamaha Headphones. I hope to catch you here soon for the final Ekalalia episode. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mutt. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.